It's Tuesday, July the 11th, 2023. Let us gather together and experience the goodness of God. I'm Pastor Trey Comstock. This week we'll begin uh, with our scripture for the week, Romans uh, chapter 7, verses 15 through 25a, and a piece written by me entitled, All Vision and No Execution. I'll then be joined by Pastor Emily Larson and Anthony Malo to talk about scripture and times when the church fails in what it is meant to and called to. But first, a reading from Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 25a. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Like many Americans, I have a garage with no cars parked in it. 50% of the space has been given over to the madness. Holiday decorations, dead furniture, sports equipment, camping gear, and three printers of uncertain origin and even less certain quality. The other half houses my wood shop. What started out as a small miter saw and a few power tools stored in a closet has blossomed into something resembling a real setup with workbenches, table saw, miter saw, band saw, drill press, and a decent assortment of clamps, tools, and chemicals. Get a lot of joy out of spending time in there. It takes me back to working at the William Mary Scene Shop in college and making things with my hands is one of my few non-digital hobbies. Fewer screens and more sawdust is probably a healthy balance. Unfortunately, very little of what I make in there is any good. The shop gets used some for professional projects, supporting studios, streaming rigs, or event setups, which need to function but not look good. Those I can engineer fine. I repair and restore tech and toys, tools, and vintage finds with no issue. However, when I want to make something that needs to function and look good, I always disappoint myself. I see clearly in my mind what it should look like. I turn that vision into an amount of wood and a list of cuts, but always somewhere between cut list and final product, it inevitably goes awry. The cuts come out less than straight. Sanding the cuts only creates different issues downstream. The paint goes on uneven. The stained finish looks blotchy, probably due to the need for glue-based interventions in the object's construction, or the design had its amateurishness baked into it from the beginning. When I make furniture for the house, my wife gamely goes along, but I know the truth. I simply am not capable, with my hands, of bringing into reality what I see in my mind. It all looks rather childish. Every project ends with me seeing clearly all the ways that I failed to execute on my intentions. I do get a lot of joy from woodworking, but I hesitate to call myself a woodworker because each object produced contains more than a touch of bittersweet regret. These struggles are not unique to my sojourn in woodworking. Paul lays out humanity's need for redemption in the same terms. I know what I should do. I want to do what I should do. I try to do what I should do. I end up doing what I know that I shouldn't do anyways. As he says in Romans 7, 18 through 20, For I know nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. 
For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. Between our conscience and a knowledge of God's law, we can surmise moral right action. Every human has some connection to God, and thus some concept of the right thing to do. The challenge comes into the doing of it. Without that deeper connection to Christ's saving work, we get stuck, like me in the woodshop, knowing what is right, desiring what is right, and unable to consistently execute on what is right. This points to a proactive aspect of redemption, not just a retroactive one. Spend a lot of time singing about how we've had all our guilty sin washed away. To pull in John Wesley's language, part of finding our way to Christ is that we become justified in spite of our previous inability to do right. We did wrong, even as we knew right, and that no longer gets held against us on a cosmic scale. Additionally, our life changes going forward. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, as Paul says in Romans 7, 24-25a. Christ opens to us a pathway by which we become capable of doing the right thing that we always wanted to do, but couldn't do. This encounter with grace regenerates a part of us, makes us less fleshy and more godly. Redemption means both envisioning and carrying out good in the world. It's far muddier than simply saying, and now I'll do right all the time. Our journey of sanctification starts with being able to do right, and only after a lifetime of two steps forward and one step back does it end with doing right all the time, aka Christian perfection. Still, redemption of Christ redeems past, present, and future. It enables us to carry out the vision of a good life that's been in us all along. It starts, or continues, by turning to Christ. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, as y'all just heard in the, the piece I just read, and when I was preaching on this thing, this scripture, is trying to pull on a couple of different threads. One of them is very much humanity's need for redemption, right? And this lays it out in a way that is not like, that, that is you know, avoids the devil made me do it, right? Uh, which is always important when we talk about a need for redemption is you can't just boil it down, that Satan really made me do it, right? Like, you, you want to avoid that, right? Because yeah. that still takes, like, human agency out of all of this. Yeah. Um, but also doesn't fall so deeply into the gap of, and now we're just going to blame women for all of our sins. It was that Eve and her apple. First of all, it was not an apple. We don't know what fruit it was. You picture an apple. Also, Adam was equally an idiot in that scene, right? Yeah. And so Paul <laughs> frames like a need for redemption as like, look, try as you might. Because of the brokenness of the world and the like, the existence of evil, you can end up participating in evil even if you don't mean to. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a way to avoid that. Um, the other piece of it is, and this kind of broader project of Romans chapter 7, is... Really good things can get twisted by evil if we're not focused on God. Right. If we're not focused on God, and in Paul's case, he's talking about the law, right? And talking about how does the law increase sinfulness, right? Um, it is because evil can even grab onto the law itself. And the best intentions of, you know, I, I don't do the good I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. It's very Dr. Seuss in, you know, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I will not eat green eggs and ham. I will not eat them, Sam, I am. I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. Um, even yeah. if our intentions are pure, we just fail sometimes. Like that we are just prone to fail. We are prone to fail in part because of our own just, right? Like, you know, I guess this is spoilers for what's coming next week, but like, we're going to talk a lot about free will next week, but free will even comes in this discussion. Like some of it is just like, we are not set up to, you know, do, do, you know, exercise our free will properly. But the other part of it is that there is just this 
power of evil. And yeah, I'm with you. Like the first time I read this scripture, like um, to like read it into a microphone, right? Which I have to do. And it's just like, why am I so tongue tied on this thing? And it's because it's, it's Sam I am. I will not eat them, Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not do what I want to do. I do what I do not want to do. I'm like, this sounds funny in English, but it's hilarious in Greek. Um, I'm not enough of a Greek scholar to answer that question, but like, I bet it's hilarious <laughs> in Greek because it is. It has this like repetitive, <laughs> but like it's a repetitive rhythm, rhythm on purpose, right? Yeah. When you have to take, you have to take it into chunks um, as you read it. Yeah. Because if you read it all as a whole, then it 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 presents itself as more complex than it actually is. Right. And then you're forced to kind of take it into chunks and really kind of resonate with each chunk in order to build the bigger concept. Absolutely. But I, I, I also, I, I appreciate the, like, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm-hmm. Like, aspect, like, that is, you know, when you read this scripture, Paul is probably not, like, he writes it in the first person, but it's probably not really about him, right? Because at this point, like, he is a Christian, um, this is probably, if you look at the kind of arc of chapter seven, you're talking about like Israel's need. Israel is like stand in for God's people, oh. God's people's need for redemption that like God's people absent, you know, the redemption that comes in Christ. This is the personified situation that they are in, right? Because it like, it doesn't. And I've fallen in this trap when you just like read that we read it out of context. You just read this chunk. It's just like, oh, Paul is like talking about himself, but like that doesn't really make sense because you know Paul has had a redemption experience. He is now doing at least some of the things um, that he himself wants to do. This is a broader discussion of like, okay, how does the existence of the law increase sinfulness? existence of the law increases sinfulness one because it creates this accountability structure you now know it's wrong so now doing it you know it's wrong you cannot go officer i had no i i had no idea what the speed limit was if you're like parked next to a speed limit sign Mm -hmm. right that is the law and then also this kind of idea that evil itself is able to hijack the law and use it for its own purpose however you want to like yeah i think i said this Sure, like however you want to talk about the existence of evil, you want to give it like personification and talk about the devil, you want to totally, you know, whatever, and talk about the brokenness in the world, like however you want to talk about it, there's this like existence of evil separate to us that we interact with when our choices fail. And so I, I like looking at this as a concept for all of humanity, not a singular human in the person of Paul, but I like that he puts it in that first person in this scripture. Um, I don't know. Did y'all read the CEB version of this as well when you were prepping? Did not. So I worked off the NRSV, the New Revised Standard. Yeah. So verse 24 in the CEB is one of my favorites. It says, I'm a miserable human being. Who will deliver me from this dead corpse? And yeah. so he just yeah. literally says, yeah, Here he I is wretched man am I, right? Like right. It is, um, it is, yeah, it's it's really like it gets at like a a need for redemption, right? Because one of the like classic theological conundrums is, hey, I I could probably do this on my own. This is this is this is Pelagius, right? Like the Pelagian heresy is is essentially it's like really logical, right? And it, it, it sounds it's really appealing to us as humans. Because it's basically like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all weak sinners. I get it. I get it. They, some generic they, are all weak sinners. Most people, actually what Pelagius would say is like, most people, they can't do this. But someone might be able to do this. Yeah. Someone might be able to live a sinless life. And clearly he had, Pelagius did not read, Romans 7 long existed by the time Pelagius is talking and writing. And so Romans 7 says, use some really good Pauline language, by no means, right? Like, no. This is how even a human, in this case God's people, but even a human questing to do right. This is not, I'm going to go in the world and I'm going to sin today, right? This is not this. This is like, I strive to be more. I, I, not even I strive to be moral. I 
I know what moral action looks like. And yet I still can't do it. Because of the, because of the problem of evil and, 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 our, and I need for grace and redemption. Right? Like it puts it on that, like, um, it goes from like uh, grace as performance enhancing substance. Right? Because like what, in like Pelagius, and like in a Pelagian construction, right, essentially, uh, uh, um, it, it serves like drugs. It, it serves like steroids, right? But like you don't need steroids to be an Olympic sprinter, but it sure does help. It's against the rules of the Olympics. But like, actually, uh, recently, I don't know, over the past week, someone announced the enhanced games. So it's going to be like a, a new like sports concept where you can take all the drugs, um, and their tagline is sports without the drug test. Wow. Hmm. So, like, in, in like, in, in, like, a, in, a, in a world where you don't need grace, grace still exists, right? Like, Pelagius would say, grace still exists. Um, you just may not need it. It's just like steroids. It really helps, right? Like, you would have bulk up. You could just do a lot of push-ups or whatever. Clearly, I have not. Um, you could do a lot of push-ups or pump iron. Uh, or you could take the good roids. Um, and it happens a lot faster. Um, that's not... Grace is oxygen. In, in, in this construction, grace is oxygen. The redemption is oxygen. It's the thing you need um, to do the thing at all. You can't lift it on your own because even your attempts to lift it on your own are going to get twisted right. without redemption. That's why you know, it ends with this great, um, you know, praise to God, praise be to God. Like, the, like wretched man am I, how can I do this? Oh, Jesus Christ. Right, because I am a miserable human being, and it, it's present tense. It's post-reformed Paul, right? It's, and I, I think we do a disservice, and pastors are especially guilty of saying, oh, well, I, I used to be a sinner, or I, I used to struggle with sin, or I used to struggle with not, you know, being righteous enough. But the fact that we all are still, you know, trash fires, to use your word, that we all yeah, are still living in need of grace. Run Romans, you know, hum- humanity is trash fires. Like, look, but Emily, look, friend, you are never going to get your evangelical book deal if you don't claim to be a fully reformed sinner. Right. right? Like, you, like, it is okay in, in happy, smile, in happy, happy, shiny people, right? Like, happy, smiley Christianity um, to have had a past, right? There's that, you know. As long as it stays in the past. Right, like, where, like, it's making fun of contemporary worship. If you haven't watched this and you're with us, watch it. It's four minutes long or whatever. It's really funny. But it's like, raise your arms like this to show that you have a tattoo. It indicates that you have a past. Right? It's okay to have a past. It's not okay to have a sinful present. Yeah. Right. Um, And I think that is, certainly in the the essay part, like, in the he shall destroy. Like, I, I took this in the, like, a direction of sanctification. Right, so in kind of John Wesley's construction of um, our our need for salvation and our path to salvation, our vita salutis, um, to use the Latin phrase, because all the cool kids in the 1700s just threw in Latin as much as possible. They all had to go to like Oxford and stuff, and Oxford and stuff, and so therefore they had a they had to, they just knew Greek cold and they knew Latin even colder. They could like lecture in latin right because it's still like it's post-renaissance this is like you know the enlightenment they're all like weirdly obsessed with latin um and so you have you know uh, some martin luther that also fits in here salvatore peccator saved and yet a sinner but in john wesley's via salutis um way of salvation um so he lays out the this like moment of salvation is a really important moment but two things happen in that moment not one one is you are justified You've done a lot of wrong. Cool, cool, cool. You're not on the law. You're no longer on the wrong list. You're on the right list, right? You are counted as righteous. The, the phrase he uses is counted as righteous. You are not any more righteous than you were five minutes ago. And the Holy Spirit enters your life and begins to regenerate your soul. That is, begin a journey by which you can now do right action. What John Wesley would say is that's not just the work of a moment. You then grow closer to God over time, and he would use the phrase sanctified, right? Like you become more sanctified over time as your relationship with God grows, and you become even more capable to do the right thing 
over time. But that the ability to start actually doing right things, what he would call regeneration, gets tied to this moment of justification. Right? Those are the, the two things that happen in tandem that then set up your journey going forward. You are justified, even though you did a lot of bad stuff, at the moment, you're the same jerk you were. I use, don't usually use the phrase jerk when I'm not on a podcast. Um, you're the same blankety blank um, you were five minutes ago. But you now have a capacity in your soul because you have been you know, somewhat regenerated. But the beginnings of your regeneration and the power of the Holy Spirit has begun. So you can do a little bit better. And then a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better, little bit better until you are on to um, being you know, kind of what we would call fully sanctified or achieve Christian perfection, right? Like, where you just, you have finally all clicked into place and you only do the things that you want to do and no longer do the things that you do not want to do. Assuming that what you want to do and do not want to do is the right thing. Right. Does this in some way connect to taking responsibility? So in like taking responsibility or acknowledging or or taking this moment of justification that it's a precursor yeah. to living in that sanctifying yeah uh, right so yeah so, there's, so, that, so that's connected right that like part of being justified is coming to know that you need to be justified right right the, the, the first step to recovery is always admitting you have a problem this is just <laughs> true <laughs> regardless of what the thing it is you need to recover from, right? Do you need to recover from alcoholism? It helps to admit that you're an alcoholic. Do you want to begin to recover from the power of sin in your life? It helps to admit that there's a, you have a problem with the power of sin in your life, right? And that, so that's where, like, justification is, you know, you, this is the, whatever. I, I don't actually know it because I don't actually understand Billy Graham. But the sinner's prayer. Right, the like, you know, some version of, or it's even in our own, right, like, baptismal vows, right? Um, like, the recognition that you've been a sinner and that you need help to not be, mm-hmm. right? Um, that is what sets up a moment or a, a, a life of justification. It is, oh, I have messed this up, haven't I? I have done the. Th- I have wanted to do the thing. I have these things I want to do. I have not done the things I want to do. I've actually done the exact opposite of what I do. God, please help me. Right. right. This sets up that whole thing, and then God says, "Welcome home." I don't care what you've done. We're going to work on this. Right. The I don't care what you've done. That's being justified. The we're going to work on this together is regeneration, sanctification, that journey. Yeah. Right. But it does. You're absolutely right. Like it starts with, hey, I need redemption. Like this is not I have messed this up. Uh, You know, for me, it's like I am toxic to the humans I interact with. I need help with that. You know, left to my own devices, I have tanked this thing. Oh, uh, this is 19 year old me. Right. Left to my own devices. Oh, Lord, I have really tanked this thing. Um, uh, can you help me? <laughs> and it, it very much uses that language of, it's a good analogy thinking of it as, as a recovering addict or something. So there's no such thing as a fully reformed, uh, alcoholic or uh, at former addict. They're always recovering alcoholics. If you, my dad is an AA, uh, participant for 27 years now he has been sober but he will always be and refer to himself as a recovering alcoholic because you never stop working on yourself you never stop being that um, so you start with the go to your first AA meeting admit that you need help justification part uh, justified by God's grace but then you continue that journey for the rest of your life until you you know reach a point of Christian perfection so and for Christian perfection right I, I always wonder this. I am not. I have not reached this, right? So, like, don't. I, in some ways, I'm a terrible person to talk to you about Christian perfection because, you know, I, I, I ain't there, friends. Uh, I'm still a sinner. Uh, but I wonder. So, the people that I that I suspect have reached that point would never tell you I have reached that point, right? They've just. 
they would still think of themselves, I suspect, as a recovering sinner. Even if they've gotten that place where sin doesn't really have power in their life, they, I, I, I suspect you would be committing the sin of pride to like, it's, to say, I have reached, I'm Christianly perfect. Behold! Right? It's, there's this terrible question in the United Methodist ordination vows. It comes from John Wesley, but it's just a bad question. Um, because the, the question isn't, are you going to try to reach per- perfection? Um, it is, do you intend to reach Christian perfection in this lifetime? To which you're supposed to answer, yes. And what I always wanted to answer was, I'll try. <laughs> because that seems like this like really presumptuous, like, yeah, I'm going to reach it. I'm going to get there. Um, I, I, yeah, you know, I, I, uh, yeah, I certainly like, I, I am a, a better human than I was at 17 or 19. And I'm probably a better human than I was at 27. Um, now that I'm 37, right? Um, but yeah, I think they're always, even for someone who may, like, there is an endpoint to this, right? Um, but even for someone who's reached that endpoint, they probably, we should, we should pick someone that we think is Christianly perfect and then interview them on this show. Like, this would be like a really useful, like, get my, um, dear friend of mine from college, um, who the, the, the meanest thing I've ever heard her say is she used a rude word in reference to Mitt Romney when he was running for president in 2012. It's the only time I'd ever heard her use a rude word. And she wasn't one of those people that was like trying to be like very publicly, I do not swear, right? She just didn't, right? You know, oh shucks. Uh, but like, but in an honest, genuine way, but not in the like, moral attempting to declare a false moral superiority way and so i suspect she's been christianly perfect since the age of like 20. um but like you know but she did call mitt romney a rude word once um i would love we should get her on this show and just like what do you think about the sin in your life i guess it's a really personal question but like i would love because i know what i think about the sin in my life but i would make no claim of having reached christian perfection (laughs) But then would she even say that Romans seven twenty four that I am a miserable human being? <laughs> she certainly, but that's that's right. part of what makes her so perfect. She right. definitely would, right? She would just say, no, no, no. You know, I, I stubbed my toe and I swore in private, or you know, whatever. Uh, you know, sometimes I I keep the bigger portion of food for myself and don't give it to my spouse. Like I can't conceptualize what what you know the sins that this woman has because as far you know, I know her pretty darn well. Can't find them, um, but she would just find all those like you know very minor imperfections in her life and 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 declare them oh oh oh, oh wretched woman that am I. <laughs> and I suppose there's some certainty that that to there's still work to be done uh, in Christian perfection. Um, you know, getting your house in order and getting your house perfect. You know, there things are still going on in the world, and there's still work that's done in order to maintain that perfection, maintain that order. No, I think that's, I think that's really smart. And I think that's really smart and really true that like part of the reason Christian perfection is you've gotten really good at maintaining that. But part of Christian perfection is continuing to maintain it, mm-hmm. right? Like as in any, you know, John Wesley's construction of the world is always, you always have the ability to move forward and backwards, right? And we're going to talk about this a lot, uh, actually, in our next episode. Um, this always, you have these options to move forward and backwards. Um, but like, if you have reached a degree of less wretchedness, you can always find new wretchedness. Mm. Just like if you've landed yourself in a ton of wretchedness, you can always find your way out of wretchedness, right? Like it's a really, it, <clears throat> to me, this is, <clears throat> there we go. I can do this. I can talk. Studio is great for my health. It's just, ah, I love breathing it in. Ah, it's delicious. Um, anyways, um, like you can always, you always have the option to move forward and you always have the top sh- option to know about, mm-hmm. right? And that, to me, that's fair, right? That like, and that is both fair and just, right? That like, hey, here's this free offer of grace. It is here for you. Do you want it? Cool. No requirements other than what? Other than other than understand that you need it and desire it. And by the way, God's been working in your life to help you understand that. Hey, I probably need this thing. Cool. Here it is. It's yours. It's free. I'm gonna work with you to get better. You don't want to get better anymore? Cool. You can check yourself out of this at any time. You want to now check yourself back in? Cool. Welcome home. 
right? Like, it is that, like, you know, if you've reached the plateau of Christian perfection, I guess you can check out of that. You know, um, this is a comical example, right? Uh, There's a, a previous congregation of, of, of all of ours, actually. There's this old older lady um, had been a matron of the church for decades, um, always took very careful care of her health. Um, she got towards the end of her life. The Alzheimer's was starting to kick in. Um, and she started eating, like, a gallon of ice cream or more a week. Right? She started eating, like, this is this is very careful person, you know, took care of her health, whatever. And, you know, had, had, had really had lived in her 90s, right? Her daughters were in their 60s, right? She had lived a life. And then she basically said, I'm fine. I'm just going to eat ice cream now. <laughs> Right, like I, I have achieved what I want to achieve in health. I have lived, at, you know, long enough to, you know, still have. You know, she had her health longer than she had her mind, right? And so she just start started asking her daughters to smuggle in ice cream into this, into her retirement, you know, nursing home, whatever. Uh, but she was eating. It was seriously like and it was sitting across from uh, one of her daughters. Like, yeah, we just keep bringing her ice cream, but she's like, what's it gonna do? Kill me? <laughs> right so like you know this is this is not relation to do with the relationship with god relationship to your physical health but you get the idea right like you can reach that plane and go yeah you still can't right maybe at that point you've had that built this relationship with god for so long that you're probably not likely to do that but you always have that option there's always that capacity to do that forward and back but i think part of the reason that well, part of the impetus for moving forward is that you have that Holy Spirit with you, that you don't have to do it on your own, um, by your own willpower, by yourself anymore. Um, you do have to choose it, but once you choose it, you have that accountability partner. Um, so my husband and I just recently got a gym membership. And, yes. and uh, speaking of things that you should do, but you may not want to do, but you know you should do and them. And your brother, um, right. Yes. So like, but, but I still have to get myself out of the house and get to the gym to use it. Um, I can buy all the gym memberships I want or whatever, unless I actually go and utilize it, it's not going to do me any good. Um, but if I have that accountability partner in my husband who is saying, you know, Hey, let's go, let's, you know, get off the couch and stop live streaming, you know, let's stop just binge watching the shows and go binge watch them at the gym instead because they have TVs. Yeah, they have TVs on the things, right? Like this is, um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, yeah, oh, exactly, right, you've got to, you have, you now have that assistance to make the effort, right, right? this is how, you know, again, back to, back to, kind of, and, and this on our friend Pelagius again, right, like, there's a fine line between working out, you know, pull another Paul quote that then Calvin carries forward to working out your own salvation in fear and trembling, right, um, and earning salvation, right, there's a really fine line between that, right, and it starts with the fact that God makes you able to do it, right? That God moves first. And so you are, in the end, still putting in the effort to get better. Absolutely. Right? And it's going to take effort. It's going to take real work, right? Methodists get called Methodists because they took their spiritual life, the early Methodists took their spiritual life so seriously. They're like spiritual disciplines so seriously that their colleagues at Oxford mocked them. It's like you have a method for salvation. And John Wesley being a little bit of a punky, whatever. I love him. Um, he's also kind of a jerk, but whatever. Um, so like, fine, you've given us this nickname, we'll use it, right? Because that's how seriously they took their spiritual lives of like wanting to grow closer to God. So there's a lot of effort involved in this, but it's still not earning it on your own. You're only able to even begin that process because God moved in your life first. And God continues to move in your life, as you say, in life, to like be that accountability Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we're going to take a short break. Some more theme music will play. Maybe someday there will be ads when that theme music plays. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the kind of the other side. We've talked a lot about our, our need for salvation. Talk a little bit um, about um, when uh, evil can twist things that are meant to be really good. We'll be right back. <laughs> And we're back to um, kind of the other segment of the show. If we just 
did kind of scripture talk. Can you talk about scripture? Um, this is a segment where we have an opportunity, a segment we call How to Restart a Church. Some of this comes from the fact that the three of us are involved in a church restart project. But some of this comes from when you look around, maybe not at global Christianity. Global Christianity, is, you know, there's more people professing the name of Christ now than at any other point in human history. But if you look at Western Christianity, like, we're in restart mode, right? And this is, you know, kind of continuing our reflection on Romans 7. This is an opportunity for us to talk about, like, yo, one of the reasons why church is in restart mode is because a lot of bad things have been done in the name of the church, right? And so just like Paul doesn't really have a concept of the capital C, the church, right? Paul does, you know, I bet Paul dreams of a Christianity that spans the globe that is, he, I don't know if he can conceptualize a, a billion people. There were like only a few hundred million people even alive then. Mm -hmm. um, but like, he wouldn't have those concepts. So he's talked about the law. He's, he's writing this chapter on, on Israel's need for grace. But that same thing has happened to the church over and over again. And there's a lot of, you know, kind of a constant flow of headlines. Most recently, right, Houston Chronicle, um, a couple of years ago now, did this major expose of the uh, Southern Baptist Church um, and their struggles with uh, sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, even still, you know, at the SBC had their, whatever they call it, their big fancy me annual meeting um, where their delegates gather and um, they rolled out the, like, what are they going to do? And even still, there's, like, factions within that denomination trying to limit how they're tracking abusers. And there is, you know, you look at both in the past year, just the past 12-month period, both the Southern Baptist Church and the Catholic Church in Germany lost a half a million members. And that, that's not like, you know, we are seeing a steep decline. And there's a lot of things that feed into the steep decline. But one of the things feeding into the steep decline, to me, and, and not just to me, right? To, like everyone who, you know, goes up in the witness box and talks about how their pastor hurt them um, in this really profound way. And, you know, the, one of the, the things that always stayed with me is the, there was this, I watched Spotlight, uh, which everyone should. Uh, the one, the, the Mark Ruffalo playing the Boston Globe journalists um, uncovering the clergy sexual abuse scandal in Boston. Anyone in a position of religious power should watch that thing. Um, because one of the things that that, it's a, you know, fictionalized portrayal, that movie does is like bringing the victim's voice into it. Um, and this like, hey, I thought this person was like the representative of God on earth. If, you know, the representative of God on earth said, this is the thing, well, I guess this is the thing, but now it's absolutely destroyed my life, right? Yeah. And this, to me, relates to, you know, actually I brought it up as, like, the opener of the sermon, right? Like, all the ways that, like, people's desire for something good can then be taken and twisted if we don't keep our prior to straight and keep our eyes on. I think you're right. And it's real easy to point at external factors and say, you know, coronavirus is the reason that it didn't come back or the church isn't functioning or whatever other external factor you want. But it's that's back to the devil made me do it, right? That's yeah. looking at an external excuse for what has just been thrown into greater relief maybe by the pandemic um, is that now we can see these are things that have come forward since, you know, whatever external factor has exposed them um and so taking responsibility for the fact that we are a miserable human being again that that we live in that need for grace still and that the church stands in need of grace as well where we have shortcomings and like you know look uh with the you know i have called out two traditions that i don't practice like even here in the united Methodist church like we were part of a major settlement last year um related to the boy scouts of america Mm -hmm. uh, I had to put a lot of, you know, I mean, that I mean, two years ago. I don't know. It was during, we did it on Zoom. Um, but in the past, like, you know, 18 months of my own ministry, like, I've had to sit and recognize places where our church, where United Methodist Church is, 
um, were connected to a real failure of accountability and to recognize that even if as a denomination we have you know, strove to do better, right, there were still, you know, people who got hurt here um, and we're here, it just mean broadly church, right? It seems like every denomination, every large, you know, frankly, every large structural entity that serves young people um, is going through this. And you can say, well, the church is just part of another group that serves young people, and this is just endemic with serving young people. But, like, we should be better. A, we should be better than that, right? We should be the place that is the safest. And consistently, as the capital C church, we haven't been. And then we also need to recognize that, like, that has an impact beyond just, like, the people hurt. Like, that itself is a horrific impact. And then it also means that people see the, like, the double standard, right? Like, we can stand up all day and be like, be moral, be good. And, and I do this, right? We just did that. But the... It is then on us to also live that way. Yes. Live that way that we're saying. Um, because what the world has noticed, right? The ever-increasing number of non-Christians in the United States and Western Europe have noticed that the capital C church is really good at saying one thing and projecting a standard on others of one thing, and then living a very different way that does a huge amount of harm to people. Right. Yeah, I think I think okay. that uh, talking about the the drop in numbers and in, in the Catholic Church and and kind of seeing this across the board that there's a real um, as we're growing dynamically as a society into areas of social justice and social accountability that really that's what people are looking for, connecting back to the scripture here where Paul's talking and he talks in a very uh, direct way to himself, but he's actually speaking outward to the people and speaking directly to the church. And, you know, I think moving forward as a church and as denominations or, or uh, as local communities, that really that first step is taking that accountability and, and looking at the church uh, in the same way as going through the modes of grace and the justification like taking responsibility and and publicly uh, and being honest and and coming from a place of honesty moving forward where uh, we're no longer you know uh, pointing finger at the church and instead working with the church and with the community in order to go through this sanctifying grace uh, together. Yes, and I think one of the one of the pieces of this is kind of recognizing the the breadth of where we've gone wrong, right? And I, and I, and I kind of opened with one of the most visceral, which is this, like, kind of endemic, I think endemic is the right word, endemic, um, uh, particularly child sexual abuse, but the kind of failures of sexual ethics, right? Like, you know, name the number. We can sit here and list the number of evangelical leaders that have gone down, um, if not for, you know you know, child sexual issues, larger sexual issues, whether it's sexual harassment or affair, like, you know, I, you know a lot of this you know, sermon that I preached and this was built on having watched Happy Shiny People, the documentary about the Duggars. Um, uh, and, you know, Josh Duggar goes down for child porn. That's why Josh Duggar is in prison. Mm -hmm. Like, he, you know, he, they did terrible things. But, like, the, the, uh, since the church are, are, are broader than that, right? And I think, you know, there are denominations, and, and ours may well be one of them, that says, look, yeah, we, you know, we've, we had issues with that. We've got a lot better. And that's true. And, like, you know, um, you know, some of us on this call have been a part of kind of pushing for and enforcing those standards. Um, but... One of the things that a lot of kind of the mainline churches, that is like Methodist, Episcopalian, some kinds of some Baptists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, that's the word I'm looking for, the Presbys, um, is that like we got really good at being big and we got really bad at having any spiritual weight to what we were doing. 
right? And that is, in its own case, is letting the desires of the world, letting something that is kind of evil adjacent to creep in. And that is like, oh, don't talk about the real stuff of Christian life. It's going to scare off the visitors, mm. right? It's going to make you, don't talk about sin. It's going to make your giving go down. Right, right. But it, I mean, I think that part of that is, you know, we as a church can apologize for the sins of the past. Um, you know, even those that were done with good intentions, I, I hesitate to call this a good intention, but I, I had a woman come into my office one time, you got to meet her, um, who was astounded that our senior pastor would have a tattoo because she came from a very, very conservative congregation. Um, but this congregation had with the best of intentions, I'm sure, I hope anyways, um, had given this woman an uh, unwilling exorcism um, because they believed that that is what would help her. Um, And she was very traumatized from this experience. And so uh, even with the church trying to do right, again, this is the I do the thing I don't want to do and I, you know, don't do the thing that I should do. even when the church tries, we still fail as a church sometimes, that we still have to apologize to people at times because we didn't get it right. Um, And so recognizing that and working on that and moving forward from that with apologies, um, I think is important. There's this book I read uh, a few months back now um, called Nonverts by Stephen Bolivant. So Stephen Bolivant is this like British sociologist he is not a Christian, but he's fascinated with America, and he's fascinated with like trends in religious devotion. And what he did is he wanted to. We talk about the, like the rise of the nuns, and that's not N U Ns, right? Um, holy orders are declining. Um, it's N O N E S, nuns, is having no religious. When asked what religious do you, affiliation do you have, they say I have none, right? And so we have this narrative of the nuns that it is like people who left the church because they were mad um, or people who kind of got converted to radical atheism, right? And actually, that's not most of the nuns. Um, And so what Stephen Bolivant does is he looks at like kind of major sectors of modern Christianity and looks at why people left each sector because each sector was different. So he looks at evangelicals and why people might leave the evangelical church. And he looks at the Mormons and why people leave the Mormon church. And he looks at the Catholics and why people left the Catholic church. And guess what? One of the reasons why a lot of people left the Catholic church was, you know, the kind of reckoning with abuse. And then he gets to the mainline churches, which is us, right? Which is us as we're, you know, Emily and I are Methodist pastors and, and Anthony um, is training to become one. God bless you. Um, and gets to the mainlines. And the... the you know, from his interviews and, and from his, he's a trained sociologist, it's like it's fairly valid research, um, that most of the people that left the mainline church, just, we never made them care. <laughs> right? It was like, a lot of those interviews were just like, I mean, yeah, like, it was good, and like, I guess youth group was fun, and like, we went on a mission trip one that one time, that was cool, but then like, it got busy, and like, had jobs, and it's like, maybe I'll go back, but then like, you know, just didn't really matter. Like, we did good stuff, but, like, didn't really matter. And, like, you can just look at that as, like, a failure of, like, we didn't train them well enough. But I actually look at that as Paul's good thing getting twisted, is we got obsessed with being big. And so we got obsessed with being big. And a great way that we came up with to become big was to make the religious experience as stress-free and smooth as possible come in to our very large and beautiful sanctuaries, hmm. the carpet will be very plush. Wonder- My feet are on that very plush carpet right now, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and we will uh, preach to you, but it will be about do good and don't do bad. Be a responsible citizen. Give money to the church and charitable causes and you'll be fine. You are not a wretched sinner. No, no, no. We just need to do good in the world. And like, and then we're shocked when we look at a generation that goes, like, why do I need you? Right? Like, I can yeah. figure out to, like, I can figure out. Like, it turns out your average, you know, agnostic 29-year-old millennial can figure out the concept of do good and don't do bad. And if that's what we've boiled this religion down to so we can keep our numbers up, right? Like, that it's to me, 
Like, that is a as much as any of these others, us letting something good, which is the desire to reach as many people as possible, that's the desire here, and letting that get twisted into something that is not good, a, like, friction-free religious experience. Right. I wonder if that ties back into uh, the discussion we were having before the break uh, about Christian perfection and the maintenance work that goes into that. And, you know, a church that recognizes these things, now apologizes, and then maybe has this sense of feeling that, okay, we've got the big church, we've got the programs going, this is uh, church perfection, yeah. uh -huh. right? And now that we've accomplished ah. church perfection, now let's stay here for a yeah. while. And instead of recognizing that maintenance work that's still required, instead of like acknowledging that the world's still happening, there's different things happening that, that we've learned to navigate, but now we're no longer in that sense of navigating that because we feel good about what we've already built. That's, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, that's as good a place as any uh, to bring this show in for a landing. Thank you all so much for joining us on this, the first episode of, uh, you know, the goodness of God, or as we gather together to experience the goodness of God. The uh, goodness of God um, and everything else we do here uh, is a product of the Servants Now Media Lab at Servants of Christ United Methodist Parish in the heart of Houston's Southeast End. Um, we are brought to you in part by an innovator's grant of the Texas Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. If you want to see everything that we are doing, uh, you can check us out in a couple of places. Uh, you can go to uh, servantsnow.org for our website um, or youtube.com slash servantsnow for our YouTube channel. If you want your voice in this show, we want that too. You can simply email us podcast at servantsnow.org. Podcast at servantsnow.org. And go in peace to love and serve the Lord, and we will see you next week. Mm -hmm.